Hi, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Dr. David Williams. He is the top doctor in Ontario, and he is doing what next February? You're going where? Plus, Dr. Isaac Bogosh joins us to talk about the incredible announcement for Pfizer and remembering Alex Trebek. Let's get to it. I'm all confused. I don't know how to feel because I'm outside and I'm thinking, well, geez, well, how, it's July and November. I feel good. It's fantastic. It's great. And then I worry about the polar bears. And I think, well, what does this mean? What, what does it mean for the, uh, the ice? Is it, uh, it doesn't seem right. And then, you know, it's a sort of a thing where you, you see the celebrations in the streets over the weekend in the United States. Joe Biden declared president-elect. And you think you want to celebrate? And you're doom scrolling. You say, well, you're not doom scrolling on, you know, you're, you're just looking at the news and you're thinking, well, maybe I won't doom scroll. And then all of a sudden, Alex Turbeck is dead. He dies. And so he up and down is, is the sort of feeling for the Monday up and down. Now let's go. I'm going to get to a skill testing question later on in the program. We're actually going to be joined by a former contestant on Jeopardy to talk a little bit more about Alex Trebek. But the question I have for you, thanks Loretta, the question I have for you is there's going to be a concession. It's just when. When will there be a concession, an admission that soon leadership at the top must change? When Will there be an acceptance that the public rejects the current message, that it is time for a different voice, a clearer voice, that we can all appreciate and understand? So let's get to the trivia, because the category is lame duck leaders. Hit it, Loretta. The clue, these two Infuriating communicators left their jobs in January and February of 2021. Let me get that one again. This is why I am not in the running to replace Alex Trebek, by the way, RIP, Canadian icon. Here's your clue. The category, lame duck leaders. These two infuriating communicators left their jobs in January and February of 2021. Have you written down your answers? The correct answer is, who are Donald Trump and Dr. David Williams? Donald Trump, I don't have to tell you who he is, but Dr. David Williams, he is the medical officer of health here in this province. He's the guy in charge of our coronavirus response. And you may not know this, but Dr. Williams is retiring in February. In the middle of a pandemic. Top doctor. Well, where's my gold watch? I'm out on my way out the door. I mean, what's he going to do? Travel? Where's he going to go? Dr. Williams has been roundly criticized for not being entirely clear in his communications. And there have been questions, of course, about the direction that Ontario is taking. What are the numbers today? 1242 in terms of cases. Again, in that record category. Over the weekend, we set records. 
And the numbers continue to go up. And in Peel region, they're saying, hey, whoa, hey, whoa, hey, this whole new framework thing you got with the colors and the whole bit, and I don't know about it. Let's maybe just stay where we are. Numbers are going up. And the province says, nope. Nope, we're going to this new color-coded thing. So this morning, Health Minister Christine Elliott said that they're going to have two new testing centers, three of them, in Brampton. They're going to change the testing criteria. You just walk into an assessment center and get tested. No longer need to appointment or any of that. No, it's okay. The numbers are spiking, but, you know, we're changing the whole thing and we're opening up more stuff. The framework is a framework. That is our good doctor this morning. Let me just tee that battle up for you one more time. Because when asked... Why is it that we are loosening restrictions in Brampton, in Peel region? In fact, Brampton's medical officer of health has actually had to put more restrictions in. Said, yeah, I know what the province says, but we're going to add a little bit more because look at the numbers. Oh, my God. The framework is a framework. That was the answer when Dr. Williams was asked. What about the framework? It seems not to be really being able to communicate well. So the framework is, I don't, we don't understand it, and why is it that local medical officers of health are having to put their own restrictions in, and we're going to lift restrictions this coming weekend in Toronto? Have you seen the numbers? What's going on? Doctor, can you explain it? The framework is a framework. Well, now that's clear. So coming in February, the correct answer to our trivia question, by the way, again, the clue, these two infuriating communicators left their jobs in January and February of 2021. Donald Trump, I hope that one comes true. And Dr. David Williams, who's retiring in February of next year. Can we wait until February of next year to understand what in the world's going on? Is that really, is that what we're going to have to do? We're just going to have to wait. Meanwhile, the framework is a framework. So the framework within the framework is the framework. And now it is just up to medical officers of health, like Dr. Lawrence Lowe in Peel, to say, "Mm, you know what? When I look at the numbers, this framework doesn't work. So what we're going to do is we're going to shut more things down. Here's Dr. Lowe. Wedding receptions and gatherings in business establishments are not allowed effective Friday, November 13th, through till at least January 7th, 2021. We have put this date in place, January 7th, in recognizing that there needs to be plans around postponing large wedding gatherings. This date may be extended depending on what our pandemic picture looks like in January. That was the medical officer of health for Peel going further than the province. And what the province would tell you is, hey, the framework's a framework, right? So, you know, if you're a medical officer of health in a particular region, go ahead. Go ahead. Do your thing. Whatever. Shut it down. What you explain to the business owners, you explain to the catering halls, you explain to the grooms and the brides canceling their weddings. Not up to us. We're up here in the uh, command table, the command module, up here with the framework as a framework. That's, and that is what's happening. And why is it that we are now allowing 
our central response, our central command table to just sort of say, no, it's up to you. And here's something to watch in the next couple of days. Here in Toronto, Dr. Eileen Davila, she's our medical officer of health in the city. You watch. Coming up this week, she's going to start talking about, yeah, you know, I know we're supposed to go from modified stage two to what, orange next week? We're not doing it. It's not happening. Forget about it. And the questions will go back to the province. And Doug Ford will say, well, listen, I take my advice from our chief medical officer of health of the province, uh, Dr. David Williams. And uh, uh, Dr. Williams, if you could come to the microphone and again, explain to us how this all works. And he's just going to say, a framework is a framework. And then we're just like, well, I don't know. Wow, exciting news to wake up to this morning about a potential vaccine. News from Pfizer about that. that The Prime Minister has called potentially a light at the end of the tunnel. Pfizer saying that analysis has found that the vaccine it is developing is more than 90% effective in preventing the disease of COVID-19 among trial volunteers. And there's no evidence so far of any serious safety concerns. What does it all mean? And should we be taking all of this with a grain of salt, or is it time to pop the champagne? Isaac Bogosh is an infectious disease specialist and a regular contributor on this radio station. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back on. So are you popping champagne this morning? I'm buying champagne, but I'm not popping it. It's premature to pop the champagne, but it is okay to be cautiously optimistic and even excited about this. The data that has been released looks good, but I think we have to wait till it's fully completed and fully released, and we can pour over this data. We can look at the safety and the efficacy of this vaccine uh, before we, we get too excited. And, and then and only then is it champagne popping time. Give me a sense of how close we are to the finish line here. Well, I think we're closer than we think, or closer than what many have thought. Um, you know, the, the, there's multiple phase three clinical trials going on. So there's lots of trials ongoing worldwide. And, and Pfizer certainly is one of the front runners, but there's a few others that are pretty, pretty advanced as well. So there's also AstraZeneca and, 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 and Moderna, just to name a couple, but, and, and even more, not, not too far behind that. So there's been tremendous uh, advances on the vaccine front, and now we're starting to see the results of these advanced human clinical trials. And so far, I mean, with this Pfizer one, yeah, it's preliminary. Yeah, it's not done yet. But if what they say holds true or even is close to being true, that would be a tremendous success. The New York Times reporting that Pfizer plans to ask the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. for emergency authorization of a two-dose vaccine later this month. And by the end of the year, it apparently will have manufactured enough doses to immunize 15 to 20 million people. I think for, you know, the the previous experience with vaccine development, years, and the speed of this is going to raise some red flags, is it not? Yeah, it always will. And even it raised red flags well before COVID-19, and it's going to raise flags long after COVID-19 is in our rearview mirror. But I think it's important to remember two points. One is that, you know, these vaccine platforms have been used for a long 
long time. No one started from scratch. Uh, you know, I, with, with, regardless of the approach that a company has been used to make a vaccine, almost all of them have been used for, for a long, long time. And number two, never before have you had truly unlimited resources and unlimited attention towards solving a problem, right? The whole world basically said, here, here's our money, here's our brains, fix this. And it's incredible what you can do when you've got unlimited brains and unlimited resources at your disposal. And, and look, we're starting to see the results of it. Can you explain to me why this would be a, a two-shot vaccine? Uh, they want to get the appropriate immune response. So with the Pfizer vaccine, it's a shot on day one and then again on day 21. And their data, again, if we take it at face value, they say that you're protected seven days after that second dose. So 28 days total after your first vaccine. There's other vaccines that are in development that are a one-shot deal. That's the uh, Johnson & Johnson one, which is is obviously still in phase three clinical trials. So the, of the vaccines that are coming through the pipeline, most would be two-shot deals, but there are uh, a couple of one-shot vaccines as well. There's other logistical hurdles. This one needs to be stored at about minus 80 degrees Celsius. You have to think about the tremendous logistics it would take to deliver that across Canada. So, you know, there's still lots to do, but, uh, but I think the rate-limiting step is really not delivering the vaccine. The rate-limiting step is, you know, creating a successful, safe, and effective vaccine. That's the hard part. I mean, once you have that, we can figure out the logistics. Yeah, it might take time. Yeah, it might take money, but it can be done. Isaac Bogosh, an infectious disease specialist and a regular contributor, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. My pleasure. Have a great day. Very sad news over the weekend. Alex Trebek, who hosted the syndicated game show Jeopardy since 1984, passed away from pancreatic cancer. He was 80 years old. He was born in Sudbury in Ontario in 1940. And while he was still attending the University of Ottawa, he was hired by the CBC. In addition to anchoring newscasts, he also was tapped to host everything from sports shows to variety shows. Among his many CBC series was Music Hop, a Canadian version of American Bandstand that aired in the mid-60s, along with something called Sports Aplenty. He then came to the genre that would dominate the rest of his career when he hosted his first game show, CBC's Reach for the Top. Then, it was in 1984 that TV producer Merv Griffin was planning to revive Jeopardy, which had previously enjoyed a successful run from 64 to 74, and Griffin tapped Alex Trebek to host. The rest is history. And that sound was a weeknight event in so many homes. The world stopped when Alex and Jeopardy came on. To talk more about this, about this, I have two guests with me. Chris Janselowitz is a global news journalist who has written a story about uh, Mr. Trebek's passing. And Sumia Mayapan is a former contestant on Jeopardy, who competed on Jeopardy, in March of 2016. Welcome to you both. Hello. Chris, Chris, I will start with you and what we know about uh, Alex's passing this weekend. Yeah, you know, like what's sad news? You know, this has been something that, uh, you know, journalists, uh, particularly entertainment, entertainment journalists like me have been watching. Uh, you know, in March 2019, he revealed that uh, he had this diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, stage four, I believe. So, it was, you know, it's pretty advanced even at that time. 
So over the last year and a bit, you know, we've been kind of marveling at um, Trebek's constant. He's been posting videos and and all these other things over the last several months saying, you know, I've made this progress, I'm undergoing this treatment, you know, this is what's happening to me. And throughout all of it, he really was upbeat and, um, you know, there's never really any negativity whatsoever. You know, he's always very confident sounding. Um, and, you know, he lasted a long time uh, despite the stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis. So, um, you know, it's a sad thing and, you know, everyone's really sad to see him go and and it was really nice to see the outpouring on social media yesterday. Yeah, and I can tell you right now that uh, in Toronto, on the uh, Walk of Fame, where Alex Trebek's name is, there is a growing memorial there in Toronto right now. So me is on the line. Tell me about your experience in meeting Alex Trebek when you were on the program. Hi, thanks for having me on here. Um, it was it was wonderful. As you said, it was about four and a half years ago. And it was really, I think most contestants can say it was fulfilling a lifelong dream. You know, I'd been watching the show since I was very young. My dad introduced me to it. And I think what makes, you know, this loss so um you know, insurmountable is the fact that he was such a constant fixture in my life, like throughout my entire life, that it was always uh, 7.30, I'd be watching the show. And so to be on the show and to meet Alex Trebek, you know, uh, who's a national treasure, it was incredible. Did you get a chance, like, how did it work? Did you get a chance to speak much with him? There's always that that segment in Jeopardy where you, you get yeah. a chance to kibitz with him on the air. Exactly. And so actually before contestants appear on the show, the producers ask us to come up with five fun facts to to share during that Q&A section of the show. And um, he, I remember, we don't have very much interaction with Alex before the show starts taping, um, but it is, it's once that game starts, you know, we, we start interacting. And then during that first commercial break, um, I remember, you know, he was staring at his note cards, uh, trying to pick of those five different anecdotes I provided, which one to, to talk to me about. And he chose the most meaningful one, which is about how my dad and I would keep score as we watch the show. And to me, that showed how thoughtful Alex is. You know, the fact that out of all those anecdotes, he chose the one that he knew would means so much and I felt like that basically immortalized how much the show meant to my family and I felt like he knew that would be a very relatable story to so many of the viewers who are watching and in fact even I believe it was Friday's program or perhaps Thursday's program the the winner uh, talked to Alex in that that same segment where he talked about how he had sat on his grandfather's knee Mm. and learned English by watching yeah. Alex Trebek through all those years. And Chris, to you, what was it about Alex Trebek and just the comforting sort of presence that he was that connected with so many people? Yeah, you know, this was a host that was, like you said, in our in our homes uh, every weeknight. We're talking 36 years, you know, he, he's a long-term host, um, you know, kids know him, you know, grandparents know him. It's just, it's a face that you've seen. I don't know if it was the mustache for that period of time. You know, we all 
idolized his mustache. It was so great. And then when he shaved it off, we were all so shocked. You know, it's, it's little things like it's part of our, our lives, our upbringing. You know, it's comparable to someone, say, like Bob Barker or like, say, you watch The Price is Right every day. You know, these people just come into your home and they just become part of your family. And it's it's just so upsetting to see him go, you know. And I, I wanted to add that I had the privilege of interviewing him. It was probably a good 10 years ago now. Um, and, you know, what Sumia said is true, that he he's very... Uh, a very emotional person. And he's very, very touching when he spoke to you. It was, it was weird, you know. He had he told a lot of corny jokes, but at the same time, seemed so sincere. Um, but no, a, a very loving seeming man, and uh, you know, I'm very sad to see him go. Uh, Sumia, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say if I could just add his professionalism and dedication. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, they take five shows in a day. And I remember waiting for my turn to go up and I was watching from the audience. He was such a perfectionist. You know, he would stop the tape during a recording if he didn't like the way he read a clue um, and he wanted to redo it. So that's how dedicated he was to his performance as host. He wanted to always portray that and he wanted to you know he was so serious about his craft and I think that's very admirable and he did that until the last day that he taped which I believe was about 10 days ago so to do that for 36 years is is you know amazing you know I'm just reading news now on the wires that uh, the last program uh, that Mr. Trebek uh, taped will air on Christmas um, this year so that will be the final program uh, of Jeopardy that he taped before his death. Mm-hmm. Can you talk, Sumia, just a, a little bit about the difference between, you know, experiencing it as a contestant and what we see on television? Yeah, and so when I mentioned, um, you know, my first, you know, other than uh, that first round, you know, he, you know, he calls on us for, you know, bringing in and whatnot, but that Q&A section, you know, about 60 seconds before uh, we returned from commercial break, he was there standing right in front of me, uh, right in front of my podium and looking at those note cards. And I just remember looking at him and thinking, oh, my God, like he looks exactly like he does on TV. He's very <laughs> ten, and he looks very serious. Um, he looks very serious. So I didn't want to disturb him. I didn't want to ruin his concentration at any point. But then once he got, you know, once he started talking, he, like I said, you get that, you got that thoughtfulness, you got that warmth. And even during the show, I, I have to say my most memorable clue was about Terry Fox, that him knowing that, you know, Alex knowing that I was Canadian um, and for me to answer a clue about, or sorry, give the question about Terry Fox to that answer. Uh, Alex, you know, we had a nice little moment where he said, I knew, I knew you would get that. I knew when you rang in, you would get that. And I thought, wow, that that's such a sweet and tender moment. And it shows um, exactly what people see on TV when they're watching on their couch about how he's, you know, he's, North America's grandfather or North America's uncle, right? Like he's that sweet person and he's the arbiter of truth is another, you know, way that you could look at him. The fact that you can tune into Jeopardy at 7.30 and know that you can rely on the facts. You know that what Alex is speaking of and what the show is presenting to you is the truth. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people will remember the show as and his legacy on the show. Certainly in a post-truth world, having something like that anchored by facts is so 
reassuring, is it not? Mm-hmm. Chris Janselowitz is a global news journalist. You can read his story online now about the passing of Alex Trebek. Sumia Mayapin was a former contestant on Jeopardy. Thank you to you both. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. It is certainly a sad day, a sad passing of Alex Trebek, but I choose to remember the family moments that I have had over the decades watching Jeopardy, even now with my wife. I come home, we make dinner, we turn on Jeopardy. And with our mouths shoved full of food, we shout out the answers. And we preen with pride when we get one right. Alex Trebek will be missed. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays beginning at noon.